Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Welcome to another edition of the Revelation Project Podcast. I got to tell you, as I sit here holding my heart, that this is one of my most favorite, favorite people in the whole entire world. Hillary Larson is here, and she and I actually met by random chance, as I do air quotes. And, you know, it's one of those situations. Have you ever met somebody that once you kind of connect It's like your soul remembers them from another time, another place. And that's what it was like for Hillary and I. It was just like, I don't know, like there was another woman I spoke to the other day that said the moment we met our inner children knew each other. And that's the same thing. Like I felt that way about you, Hillary. And so I want to introduce her formally and then she can say hello. So Hillary Larson actually had a life that most people might dream of. After studying at the BBC and the Royal College of Art in London, she moved to New York and landed a dream job producing nationally syndicated radio shows. She interviewed celebrities from Bette Midler to Ozzy Osbourne. She eventually moved back to the West Coast and found herself unexpectedly establishing a literacy program for gang kids, eventually working with both children and adults in the roughest parts of Portland. Her success was evident on the outside, but underneath, anxiety was ruling her life, sometimes preventing her from leaving her own home. Until one day after a 30-plus year battle with anxiety, she heard the words that would eventually heal her. Hi, Hillary. Hey. I've got to call you a copycatter first off, right off the bat. Copycatter. Because you were going to say that? Copycatter. I was going to say, I was going to say the same thing about you. You were going to say, hello, hello, hello. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say when I first met you, I had the same experience of, oh my gosh, my sister's back. Ah, uh, well, it was, it was very true. I mean, I don't think we admitted that to each other right the very first time we talked, but we were kind of like, ooh, we got to make other interesting reasons to speak to each other. And that we did. Yeah. I also want to say that I I don't appreciate actually banter when I listen to podcasts. I'm a pod, podcast producer myself. I forgot to put that in my bio. And I have a thing about banter. Like I'm like, just get to it. I dialed into this podcast. I turned it on because I want to hear a specific thing about what you're, you know, what you're you're talking about based on the title. And I, I'm not into banter. However, I will say I am in love with your husband. We all know that. Because <laughs> our mutual audio nerd geekness. It's honestly, it's audio porn. That's what you too. It's like some weird, it's so uncomfortable to be around. I'm like, it's awkward. It's awkward. Let's just say it. Sometimes I need to like leave the room while you guys have your technology chats because I'm just like, wow, awkward. They're so into it right now. It just feels weird. Well, let's move from awkward to anxiety. Oh, yeah. These are two amazing subjects that, you know, I feel we're experts on. So launch right in. What do you want to say about anxiety? Well, you and I have spoken of many, 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 many things 
in the time that we've known each other. And I think that right now, I think that anxiety is such a huge subject. People needing help with anxiety. We are in extraordinary times for lots of different reasons. And so I feel like what I end up speaking of a lot lately is my own experience with anxiety. I think you're right. And I think a lot of people don't even necessarily know how to identify the feeling that they're having. In fact, one of my biggest revelations was when I was diagnosed, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about labels, but when I was diagnosed with ADD, one of the comorbidities of ADD is anxiety, except I never felt or knew what that was until I actually tried the medication and that feeling went away. And it was like this crawling sensation in my chest that I just thought was normal because I had always had it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think comorbidity is such a weird word. It is a weird word. Doesn't it sound depressing? It sounds terrible. Okay. I'm going to pass over that, but I wanted to say it. <laughs> so that's comorbidity that did you die? Did two of you die? Right. Did half of you die? Or if you're already dying, let's just push it, push you right over the edge with this co way to die. Like what the hell is that? It's not helpful. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, I agree. I agree. I think a lot of people are feeling this and that may not be the total of that feeling. So tell me what does anxiety feel like for you? I wouldn't say that I, I wouldn't have said I experienced anxiety when I was growing up. I wasn't ruled by it. I think I had normal anxiety, even though I was a sensitive kid. So if, some, if somebody would have come up to me and said, do you experience anxiety? I probably would have said no, I think. But when I was 18, I got in a terrible car accident and it was a week before I was supposed to go to college. My grandfather had just died, who was kind of my idol. And so it was kind of a perfect storm. And I ended up in the hospital for seven weeks. It was one of those moments in life where everything changes. And it was after that that I started developing anxiety. And it wasn't subtle anxiety. It was overwhelming anxiety. The kind where you have like an attack? Well, you mentioned that I had done a tutorial at the BBC in London. I was lucky enough to do that when I was pursuing my career in radio. And I was sitting doing a tutorial with this producer at BBC4 Radio, and he was very well respected. And the whole time I was sitting there or with him, or actually in England period, I suffered seriously from imposter syndrome. Like I, the whole time I was thinking sometime they're going to look at the paperwork and go, oh, we have the wrong Hillary. That story was going through my head so consistently that I was sitting in his office one day and we were talking about writing a narrative from a, one of Dorothy Parker's books. And that chorus, that mantra was going on in my head, if he's going to find out that I... I shouldn't be here. And this feeling came over me that I can't even begin to describe. It was the most intense sense of dread that I've ever experienced in my whole life. And he sounded like he was in the background at that point. And we finished the tutorial. I was just desperately trying to figure out what was wrong with me. We walked to the tube station together and I was almost going to say, there's something 
seriously wrong right now. But that's the thing with anxiety I discovered is that who wants to be anxious? Who wants to tell somebody they're anxious? It's, it seems like some kind of a, a statement of who you are, that you're weak, that there's something wrong with you, that you can't get your act together. And so I didn't tell him. I, we parted ways at, at, I think it was Paddington Station. And I ended up going to a hotel, the hotel in Paddington Station, and I threw my passport at them and I said, I need a room. And by that time, by the time I got to the room, my anxiety or what I, I didn't know it was anxiety at the time had subsided. And from that time on, I had these horrible waves of anxiety, which led to chronic anxiety. I was going to say, as you were talking, I was actually, that triggered a memory of for myself of having, at the time, I think I was in my 20s and I was giving a presentation to a huge, I think it was like Shiat Day or something, a big advertising agency in New York City. And literally, I started, just like you said, it was almost, I started having almost like this tunnel listening or like sound changed. But sure enough, it was a panic attack. But I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought I was dying in that moment. And I remember my every inch of moisture in my mouth dried up. And I just remember like, now I have my lip like st sticking on the top of my teeth on top of it. Now I'm looking like, hello, you know, just out there completely hanging in the wind and feeling like, oh my God, there's something wrong with me right now. And I had to stop the presentation. It was literally the, one of the most mortifying things that ever happened to me. And you're so right. You're right. There was this way that I was so ashamed as if like my entire being had malfunctioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I was talking to a friend the other day and she was saying to me, gosh, I'm feeling this weird feeling right now. And I think it's anxiety. I don't know if it's personal anxiety about my life seems like my life is pretty stable or it's just this collective anxiety that people are feeling. I'm, maybe I'm just taking that on. And it was so interesting to me that she was saying, huh, like, I, I wonder if this is anxiety. Like for me, it's like anxiety is like breathing. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? Right. Like, you know, right away. But the fact that some people I think actually don't feel anxious. Which, you know, I have to, I'm like, do I want to call bullshit on that? Like, has everybody, I, I'm going to say, Here's what I want to say about that. I think everybody's felt it. They just may not know how to identify it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. There's like first day of school. I mean, sometimes I have a hard time, I guess, understanding the difference between excitement and anxiety. Sometimes they can be, it's skited, right? Like scared and excited. There's that kind of presence or that blending sometimes of those feelings. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. And I also think that some people just live in sensitive bodies so that things might be amplified for people like you and me. That's a very, very true thing. I I do feel very much like a human antenna at times, I will admit. Mm -hmm. Shut it off. Yes, shut it off. Please shut it off for the benefit of me and all my friends. And mankind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now our listeners are kind of getting a taste of what it's like to be in our world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, buckle up because I <laughs> just started. <laughs> yeah, so Hillary can make me laugh also like none other because she's that person that will point to the thing and be like, let's just pause for a minute and notice this absurdity. And how can you not laugh at that? Yeah. So, so Hill, you've got 
you've kind of got this, this little inner child to you that my inner child loves. And then you've got this wise sage wisdom part of you. And then all that arc in between, which is one of the things I love the most about you. And I know that your journey has been incredibly dynamic, never a dull moment. And yet there's also an aspect of your journey that has found a way to find peace and stillness. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. I feel like conversation for the sake of conversation doesn't interest me. So what I was thinking about when you and I were talking about this topic and how necessary it is during this time, what I was thinking about is how I think my life has become in service to this conversation about anxiety and that beginning when I was, say, 19 or 20, when I first had that horrible panic attack and the journey I went on that lasted, so I'm 58 now, and it lasted for, boy, I'm so bad at math, say 25 years, 20 years, whatever, 23 years, perhaps, that if somebody would have told me that the journey was going to, like the worst part of the journey was going to last 20 plus years, I would have said, forget it. Like, don't sign me up for that. Not up for it. And when I was 24, I got clean. It was another manifestation of anxiety in my mind now, along with the genetic piece and the family history. But I remember every year, like, if you're in recovery, one year of your birthday, it's a big deal. So celebrating the first year is huge. Celebrating the second year, the third year. And now I'm, I think I have 34 years. I'd lose count. I never would have thought I would reach the day where I lose count. But I would think to myself, next year is going to be different. Next year is going to be different. I, I won't have a hard time driving here, or I actually will be able to drive here by myself and that year didn't come, and the next year didn't come. And in the midst of that, I got married. It triggered my anxiety more deeply. I remember when I was living in New York, and New York is not a great place to have really bad anxiety, and I didn't have it when I first got there, but it started developing because of I was also a severe workaholic, and I also loved my work. And I had anxiety so bad this one day, it was towards the end of my time in New York. And I remember looking out the window of my apartment. It was like the second story up. And there were these homeless guys sitting outside the building. And then they got up and walked down the street. And I remember sitting there looking at them longing to be them. Because they could get up and walk down the street and I couldn't. So that life in that kind of hell realm persisted. Sometimes it would get better, but then it would get worse again. And the journey it took me on is almost like a movie. <laughs> it took me to places I never thought I would go. And it also brought me to the place where I am now, which feels like kind of a magical place, kind of this place of um, where I got some of the secrets <laughs> of the universe, not separate from other people, but uh, just because of my journey, I had to learn things. I had to look for things. I had to go places that I wouldn't have gone 
And hopefully those things, those, those lessons I learned along the way are the things that I can pass on and hopefully help other people, especially during these times. Yeah, I can relate to that. And there's there's a part of me too that is wondering, Hillary, if you were seeking, like that it was that anxiety that was creating that seeking in you to end that, to find what? Well, I think I would initially have said I was trying to find something that would resolve my anxiety because who wants to have that? I mean, it's it would be kind of like having your arm on fire and not trying to find a bucket of water. Of course you of course you do that, right? But now in these decades past, I would say that I was trying to find a way to get away from myself ultimately. And so that journey included a kind of a ridiculous amount of a therapy, <laughs> a million self-help books, physical remedies, vitamin mineral IVs, special candida diets, energy healing, meditation. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I was, I did end up running a nonprofit and I had to manage the anxiety sometimes with anxiety medication, which was its own story. But basically, I searched everywhere, high and low. I met extraordinary people. And I also seemingly might have had a pretty good life on the outside because I was running an organization prior to that. I was interviewing celebrities you had a nonprofit at the time you were saying as well that so it it was kind of that also that facade of holding that facade which is also very anxiety producing because you're you have it all handled kind of thing on the outside while on the inside you're like this is killing me right yeah and i think part of that too is i think this culture this society says you better have your shit together you know you got to you just got to you got to. And if I remember when I first started really talking about my anxiety, people were so relieved, like, oh my gosh, I have this weird thing. I'm afraid to drive at night. I remember mm -hmm. somebody said that to me. I'm so relieved somebody's talking about this. So that was part of the thing, the shame attached to anxiety. I wasn't supposed to be that way. I remember I used to sit and watch my grandfather who seemed so stoic and people admired him so much and he was so successful. So I came up with a computation that I needed to be that way. And uh, so I practiced stoicism really. And I always wanted to be calm and cool and collected. And on the inside, I was the opposite of that. And that, that conflict, that intersection caused this just unbelievable shame for me. And and that prevented me from actually finding the help I needed to that was actually going to result in liberation, true liberation, because I always said it was something else. I always would make excuses. I, In fact, what's interesting is that I worked with lots of adults that were illiterate. Some of them didn't even know the alphabet. And I would ask them, well, how do you order food? And they would have the most ingenious ways of figuring out how to understand directions or understand a menu. They were, they were geniuses. And I kind of did the same thing managing anxiety. I would make these excuses or I would 
I would configure my life so nobody would find me out. It's so, it's such a great point. It's developing these sophisticated coping mechanisms. And then part of the, I think part of the unintended impact of that is there's a brilliance to it that you're pointing to. There's actually, and I'm relating to that as well. I've definitely had anxiety in my life. But I think about that too with the ADD. It was always trying to hide that. The way that I'm relating is, you know, sitting in class and there was this way that I would be super interested in the, maybe in the book that we were discussing, but the way that my mind works, I just, I would like go somewhere else and suddenly everybody's picking up their books and leaving. And I'm like, so I had to constantly pretend that I was there because there was this way that I just thought inside, there is something so wrong with me that I can't pay attention. And I didn't have the language for it. I don't think I had those kinds of nurturing adults at the time that were able to really kind of recognize that I was seeking or needing help and assistance. And of course, I'll also raise my hand and say I looked highly capable, you know, so there's that. I I love too what you said about running away from yourself and I don't think sometimes we recognize that there are these places within ourselves that we have such a hard time looking at and being with. And I'm wondering, Hillary, if you can kind of talk more about that and what finally was the thing that helped you to kind of start to start instead of running, turning toward yourself? Well, I remember when I was uh, married and this was a long time ago and I became agoraphobic. I really could barely leave my house. And it was obviously challenging in my marriage to my then husband, who's now one of my very, very good friends, one of my best friends. And we went to, we discovered this woman who she treated phobias. And the problem was that she was in downtown Portland on the 11th floor of this building. And I was taking these anxiety meds just to get out the door. And so Richard and I went and I couldn't go in the elevator. So I had to go up the stairs. It's funny saying this. It feels like a different lifetime, a different person. So I sat with this woman and she said to me, what I do is I sit with you and I recreate a panic attack. And I basically, she was saying, I will show you the monster. I will, I will reveal the monster. So you directly experience the monster and you'll see that it doesn't, it's nothing. You'll see the illusion of it. And then you just need like maybe a few sessions of dealing with the anticipatory anxiety that is, has been built around that monster. And there was some the deepest, deepest truth in what she said. I was like, this woman is speaking the truth. And she said, but the problem is that you can't do that if you're taking any kind of anxiety medication. You can't face the monster if there's like a a veil between you and the monster. And I could not get off of that. I couldn't. And so- You couldn't get off the meds, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because it was really like, it was so horrible being that, I mean, it was an indescribable anxiety. And so anyway, years went by, my journey continued. It just you know, as I said, a million, million different things, different spiritual paths, different ways of meditating, the whole thing. So about, I think about 15 years ago, I had been through, I think this, a crescendo of it. And I was like, I want to find that woman. This was years later. I want to find that woman. So I searched 
on the internet, but, but she, her business, she was an older woman and her, her business was before the internet. So I couldn't track her down. And so I would call different anxiety programs and say, do you know this woman? She ran this phobia thing. I couldn't remember her name. This is what she did. And they would say, no, that doesn't sound familiar. Like whatever she was doing didn't sound familiar. But I had reached a point where I was willing to say, it's just anxiety. It's not my thyroid. It's not, I mean, all those body systems were certainly involved, but it was more about facing the shame of it, Mm -hmm. of just being willing to say, this is, this is what it is. It's kind of like when somebody is willing, when they hit, they hit bottom from addiction, when they're willing just to say, I'm a, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict and to not budge from that truth. So I had reached that place in my journey and I never thought I would, if somebody would have suggested to me a year before, five years before, certainly 20 years before that I would have to just surrender to it, I would be like, well, you don't understand what it's like to be in my body then. So I had reached that. It was kind of like a cycle of surrender, I call it. And so I couldn't find that woman. And a couple of years later, I was talking to my, my, this, this divine intelligence told me to call this one woman who was very wise and she'd been on all sorts of spiritual paths and I didn't know her very well. But again, I was in the middle of a relationship and it was triggering this anxiety in me. And so I call her and I talked to her for probably less than two minutes. And she said to me, you're ready for Gongaji. Mm. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm sorry. I can't do one more thing. Like I'm not doing one more thing. But she told me to read a book called The Diamond in Your Pocket. And when I read that book, it was like my soul had been waiting for those words for eons. And it's kind of a funny, I don't want to go on and on about it, but I read the book and her message was call off the search. Call off the search and see what's really here. But I continued into doing more trauma work. And I'd done years of that, but somebody was, you know, one more person was saying, well, you have a lot of trauma you still have to work through. So I, I kind of went down that road again. And, and a couple months later, I was watching public access and there was this woman on the screen <laughs> and she was this, this other woman was sitting across from her and the woman was talking about being sad. And, and this woman said, wonder if you didn't fix sadness. Yeah. And there was something about I was so ready to hear that. And in that moment, it was almost like my life opened up to me and I realized that fixing myself was like breathing. Mm-hmm. It had become like breathing to you. It was like breathing. Yeah. It was like, dig, you know, the next self-help book, the next spiritual path, the next vitamin, the next diet, the next, next, next. It was like my life. Uh, and so... I was kind of gobsmacked, but interestingly enough, I didn't find out who the lady was. And so a couple months later, again, I'm channel surfing and this, here's this woman again. And she's speaking that language of just wonder if you could just be with what is, be with what is. And it would be like this when you hear music that's just opens your cells or something. And this time I thought, I am going to find out who that woman is. (laughs) This time I'm going to the credits. And at the very end, it said that the person was Gongaji. And I was like, 
the woman that wrote the book. <laughs> the woman that wrote the book. Yes. And she was, yeah, she's an American woman who had a, an awakening back in 1990. And she was so real and so like spoke just regular language. And, and the teaching was so basic, it changed everything for me. And it also, what she was also saying was, wonder if you could just not go into the story of this abyss, this monster, wonder if you could just feel it. And nobody had ever just invited me to feel it or be with it. It was all about the story about it. How did it get here? Who's like, was it your mom? Was it was it alcoholism in your family? It was never just about be. <laughs> yeah, be with it in the messiness of it, in the scariness of it. And trust yourself in it. Learn to trust yourself in it. Yeah. And trust the, whatever this divine intelligence is, because it was the same divine intelligence that said that woman that I went to 30 years ago, who said, it's really about being willing to fully experience a panic attack. That intelligence was saying, that's it, go there. And then when that woman was gone, the next person was Gongaji. So and I also saw, too, that everything I had done before was like this incredible, intricate building that had created that moment. So it wasn't like, oh, what a waste those last 25 years. It was like, oh, what, a, what an incredible structure that is. It just makes me think about, you know, the fact that you're talking about looking back at all of that, the foundation, all of the experiences that brought you up until this moment. And none of that is wasted because there's a way sometimes we can get to the place where we're finally like, ah, oh, why did it take me so long? And then we're on ourselves about that. But it's, there's something about being able to see it as necessary as part of the whole human journey and all of what you did in your searching also got to be divine, also got to be part of that intelligence that you reached. Because then there was, I'm hearing like a, a real opening that provided you with so much insight and so much compassion and and that that was a real turning point for you to be in service now to others. Yeah, I think the thing that inspires me the most is that if I there was like a phrase or a sentence that inspires me the most, it's about finding home. Because ultimately, I think that was what my journey was about is finding home and home is an infinite place. So I'm not saying I've arrived home, like that was it. I, you know, sometimes I have, you know, I go through something difficult. And it's not that I don't, you know, my mind doesn't race sometimes. But I feel like once you, you know, that the experience of home, there's always the possibility to open to it. And I was thinking about just how mysterious life is, you know, and yet there are these stories we tell about life. You know, I had this moment four years ago, my dad had just died unexpectedly. And I took my mom to the emergency room and she had a cough. And about 45 minutes later, the doctor came 
and said she has, they use the word impressive, impressive masses in her lungs. And basically that was it. And they left the room. And first of all, when they came back, they said, what do you want us to do? Because I think most people go, well, what treatments can we pursue? And she'd already had cancer before. And I said, we just want to love her. And the look on their faces was so, like, I wasn't prepared for their reaction. It was a beautiful moment. But when they all left the room and I was sitting there with my mom, and I knew she knew what was going on, but I, I felt this shock. And then I felt this obviously profound sadness. And then I started becoming overwhelmed with sadness, like in a way that felt like it was going to take me away. And what was happening was I was thinking to myself, what's, what's Christmas going to be like without my parents? What's Thanksgiving going to be like? And I started missing both of them in the future. Mm. And what I had learned from Gangaji was that there's suffering and then there's unnecessary suffering. And the unnecessary suffering was me going, what if? And I stopped, I interrupted my com- this narrative I had going on in my head. And I just felt the sadness of the news that I just received. And in that was this gratitude, this kind of unspeakable gratitude for life. And to me, that's when I tell, I can tell if I'm moving more into unnecessary suffering versus just suffering because when I am fully willing to experience anything, something without the story of it, almost always at the core of it, I can sense gratitude. Mm. There's so much humanity in what you just said because I think, Hillary, that's that part we miss in our human mess. It's like that, that portal where we get to experience that other side, that depth and richness of the exquisiteness of a moment of an experience. If we can pause in it and be with the wisdom of our body and our feelings. And you taught me this. I remember early on in our relationship, I was really struggling with something and you said something to me like that grief has wisdom to teach you and un- until you sit with it, you're not going to get the message and it will persist. And what I'm hearing you say is that there's a way that you couldn't be in that moment like you as you were projecting out into the future there was a way that you couldn't be with the exquisiteness of like your gratitude for not about hearing about what was happening to your mom, but about the experience of knowing your deep, deep love for her and the relief I think that comes with knowing that you can trust yourself to recognize when you're mind wants to take you into a place that you can now say no, no to unnecessary suffering. Like I'm going to be in this moment. And while I'm suffering, I'm also going to sit in kind of the, the dissipation of like, and the other, the otherness that's here. Like there's some way that I think we, 
we run from these moments and we're already in some other place. And yet there's like a beauty in even in the pain. And and I know that sounds weird, but I'm hoping you can help me make sense of it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think the Sufis talk about true spiritual arrival, so to speak, is when you can embrace both the garden and the fire. Mm. And I feel like that from this culture, we are very much taught, I know I was, that there's good and then there's the bad. And the good is happy, excited, but the bad is sad, depressed, fearful. And so when I categorize those I was constantly striving to get away from what I thought was the bad and pursuing this elusive good. And I would seemingly have it at times, but it would go away. So I think ultimately it is about trusting yourself, but also trusting this unknown space. And I was talking to somebody the other day about when you're on the radio, there's a thing that you don't want, and that's dead air. They call it dead air is when there's silence. And I think that the tragedy of that is that it's in the silence where that divine intelligence is trying to speak from. Mm -hmm. And so I wish that if I had a child right now, I would teach them to trust that silence, to trust themselves. And that doesn't mean life isn't hard sometimes. It just means that you can trust yourself. So I think that's the subtle edge of being human is that as humans, we are designed to listen to our stories, but our stories aren't trustworthy. So it's that intelligence. What's the intelligence in the space between thought and in thought? What is that? What is that impulse that says, you know what, I'm going to go check out that website or I need to pick up the phone and call this person. Or, you know, I had a book one time literally fall on me in a bookstore. <laughs> it literally hit me in the shoulder. Me too. So trustworthy. Yeah, yes. And that's where you were saying that, I'm not sure the word you used earlier, but it was like the mystery, the the mystery, the mysticism of life. Sometimes we don't provide enough space for that to occur. And you know, too, as a producer, sometimes it's those moments in between statements where it creates emphasis for somebody to like drop into something that got said, or there's so much to that. And I I love that you pointed that out, that dead air thing, because it's anything but really, when you think about it, it's such a misnomer. Because it's actually, I think, when we're not rushing to fill those spaces up, that's where deep, big magic can occur. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it proves itself over and over again, even though, you know, maybe many of you listening are familiar with the dark night of the soul. And I think sometimes people go through a dark night that lasts for a month, or some people go through a dark night that lasts for a few months. And sometimes it seems like that's a necessary passageway into a deeper life, a life of deeper understanding. 
But even that in itself, the late, I remember I used to read books on the dark night of the soul all the time because I, I wouldn't have said it at the time, but later I realized that I just, my mind needed some reason for how I was feeling. It was this kind of the source of the search. If I could just intellectually understand why I was feeling this way, whether it would be going through traumas in my life, which I think can be very helpful. It was just that I didn't trust anything that was not my mind, I think. And what would you say, you know, what would, what would your 58 year old self say to your 21 year old self now? Like, how would you, if you were to be able to give yourself advice back then, what would it have been? I think it would be, um, now this is going to sound trite, (laughs) but I think it would be, you're okay just the way you are. But the problem with that is I used to have all of these sticky notes around my house that says, you're enough. And I love you just the way you are. And it was, you know, I had them stuck on my mirror. I had them stuck on my door. Now I have one, I have one sticky note and it's been there for 13 years, as long as I've lived where I am now. And it just says one, it says kindness. Mm. It Mm. says kindness because I think there's a fallacy in, I love myself just the way I am, or I love myself unconditionally. It would be the statement. I think there's a the myth of talking to yourself in the mirror. There's a myth around that to me because sometimes I think it can exclude the yucky parts, the parts yeah. that I just really don't want to be here. I really would love myself if, if. Mm. And so I think that this inspection of unworthiness, and maybe that's the root of anxiety. And I don't want to go off into some different tangents, but it all comes back around to what does unconditional mean? And is there base to bear it all? And if the answer to that is yes, then it is unconditional. If it's like, I love myself unconditionally, except for my anxiety or except for the way I look or the way I think I'm aging or what I did do or what I didn't do, then it's not unconditional. And that's what, when I look at the word freedom, I look at the word transformation. I look at the word uh, liberation. I've always wanted the whole enchilada. I didn't want half. So I, I think I learned to trust the, that intelligence that knows the, craft cheese compared, <laughs> compared to like the fancy cheese. Actually, I don't even eat cheese anymore, but you know, you know, you know, what I, you know. know what I'm saying. <laughs> and hell, what would you, you know, what's, what's kind of the words of wisdom or advice that you'd give to people who are dealing with immense fear or anxiety right now? Well, I hope this conversation has normalized the conversation about anxiety. I think one of the biggest things that ever happened for me too, after I met Gongaji was she would talk about her uh, sensitive nervous system so openly. And I, I remember thinking, wow, well, if she can do that, 
I could do that. So actually, that's when I started just saying, I, just talk, I mean, I talk about anxiety like I talk about eating cereal now. <laughs> it's just like, but it used to be my prison. It used to be like my secret prison. So I would say that and I would say, somebody once gave me this image that I really liked and she taught mindfulness. And she was talking about if you're in the ocean and you put up like a board and the water hits up against it, the force of it is so intense but if you push, if you put the board so that it's horizontal, then there's nothing for it to push up against. And so to me, the trap of anxiety is fighting anxiety. And so what does not fighting it look like? Well, it means that you can discuss it openly. And the other thing is, is just feel without needing to understand where it came from, what it means, what it means about you what's going to happen tomorrow if you're feeling the same or worse if you if you can just open to to feeling it it has something to tell you and that's the secret when i talked um at the beginning about kind of like having a magical life or a mysterious life i didn't mean in that in any kind of secretive way yeah it wasn't it's just like there's this there's just yeah that's where you get those aha moments you know and if I take it full circle, I, you know, I went from that place of being in New York City, looking out the window at those homeless guys, having that hope if, and, you know, sitting in those AA meetings, if maybe next year will be different. And a year ago, I was flying over the Amazon rainforest, having been in India a few years before, and somehow life created itself in a way I never could have imagined. Whether I was actually contracting or I was letting go, that it was already on its course. The question was, how much was I going to suffer or not suffer in the process? So I think I say to people that my life is a miracle, but my life also isn't extraordinary from yours. Yeah. Hillary, I always, I always love these conversations because you love people and you talk about things. I think most people are afraid to talk about and you do normalize a whole lot of the human experience that's hard for people to be with. And I love that about you. There's so many. There's so many conversations that you and I have had over the years where just because you created the space for our conversation to go in that direction, I had my own aha, my own moment where I was able to see something that I might not have before. And so my hope is that, again, a conversation that might be really ordinary to you, Hillary, like an ordinary everyday experience is actually a profound conversation to listen to today because with where we're at, you know, in the world, I think a lot of people are feeling a tremendous amount of uncertainty and fear. And there's a lot of good reasons, right, to feel the way that we're feeling. And there's also an opportunity, I think, because we're 
metaphorically or even literally in a pause to really turn inward and start to maybe be with these things about ourselves that are sometimes hard to look at or seem hard to look at until we, until we give ourselves the chance. So I want to just thank you for creating the opening today for this conversation. And I don't know if you have any final words, but I'd love to do this again soon. Well, I can't tell you, well, I'll find any excuse to hang out with you for one thing. (laughs) And we have almost a podcast every time we talk, we just don't (laughs) record them. (laughs) And I also want to say, I think, you know, you have so many incredible conversations on your podcast. And so, and some people have written books that might be in the self-help category. So I also want to clarify too, in my life, it wasn't like I went, oh, all of the self-help, you know, I'm done with self-help books and that's not relevant. It's like, no, it's actually that it's about resonance and trusting the resonance. So I know I'll see you and and there will be titles where I can just feel inside myself like, oh, I'm going to lean, I'm leaning into that. So I think that's what you provide for people is an, is this incredible space to lean in. And that's just because of who you are, this magnificent being that you are. Thank you, my love. To our listeners, more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.